When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was an idea, the Avengers initiative. I can do this all day. I'm a superhero. I come to bargain. I love you for family. That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. You should have gone for the head. And I... Wakanda forever! Why is Gamora? Iron Man. We are... Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of Den of Geek Presents Marvel Standom, where we try to give you the deepest possible dives on all the goings-on in the MCU, Marvel Comics, and beyond. I'm your host, Den of Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard, and joining me today are Den of Geek TV Editor Alec Bajalad and our regular Den of Geek pop culture contributor, Dr. Joe George. This episode of Marvel Standom is powered by eBay. We'll be talking more about that in a bit. But first, we're going to be talking about the finale of Loki, which, like the first ever episode, is called Glorious Purpose. Everything comes full circle for the god of mischief as he becomes the god of stories, replacing not just he who remains, but the loom itself as Yggdrasil, the sacred world tree from Norse mythology, in order to keep the multiverse alive. Alec, I'll start with you. What did you think of this finale? I loved it. Oh, that was remarkable. Um, I think you guys said that last week's was one of the best things that Marvel has, was it ever done or done in like the Disney Plus era? Either way, it doesn't really matter to me because I do think that this episode is probably the best single episode of the MCU's Disney Plus offerings. I thought it was pitch perfect wildly entertaining really satisfying ending ties up two seasons of the series and tom hiddleston's whole arc in the mcu it was just also a really fun watch i love groundhog day shenanigans as much as the next guy so yeah this is this gets a big thumbs up for me yeah i found that um loki's journey to hero in the first season felt a little bit rushed and honestly it seemed like they had a bit of a do-over in season two in a way and I think they did it exactly right this time um the conclusion felt really earned to me sad yeah but um it came down to Loki who not that long ago really had invaded earth and killed loads of people uh kind of accepting that this was his one choice that he could make to be a a real hero (laughs) sorry we just there's just a cat here we just have to do this. <laughs> there's, there's nothing i can do to stop it mildred <laughs> please continue on. we're trying to talk about marvel television mildred it's very serious um <laughs> gosh <laughs> um joe what did you think of the finale because i don't i don't think you loved it as much as me and alec right i didn't which isn't to say that i didn't like it and this is twice now. Okay. So when I first watched it, I was like, that's, I thought that was really clunky. That that didn't really work for me. And then reading your review, Kirsty, it, it, I agreed with everything that you said. And you 
locked into an emotional truth to the to the episode that really kind of stuck with me uh, and then rewatching it and even just rewatching it today, though, I'm like, I don't know that this holds up as an episode of tel television. I will defer to Alec. And now and you're saying it's a plus. So I it didn't work for me quite as well as it did for you guys. But I feel like I'm probably wrong because you're both articulating very well why it did work. Well, what are the reasons you thought that it didn't work, Joe? Okay, so uh, it, again, it mostly works, but here's the, the the two hangups that I have. The Groundhog Day shenanigans at the start, I, I, I felt like the three shifts that it made were a little bit too clunky, you know, from fixing the loon shenanigans to then the he who remains conversation and then the the, the big payoff. I, I just found that a little too silly. You know, especially when the, the the classical music comes in and it just it felt a little too goofy for where the episode goes from there. And I found that shift. I, I just it didn't strike me as smooth. It struck me as something that works kind of in the larger context of the entire show. But as one episode, you know, 45 minutes or whatever, I, ju I just thought that was too many tonal shifts. It was kind of like endgame in miniature. But as opposed to having three hours to do, you know, three distinct one hour uh, arcs uh, or acts, rather, it was, you know, like 15 minutes. And that struck me as clunky. And then on the other end, it's way too much green, gloopy CGI. I just we, we'll, we'll talk more about that. I think there's smart things that they did with that. But I do feel like the visuals were not matching the emotional tones that they were going for. And in a way that kind of bummed me out. Um, also, Tom Hiddleston was not wearing socks in the close-up <laughs> of his feet. And that really bothered me because I think his ankles must be cold. Uh, both times I watched the episode, that's really stuck out to me. Uh, but outside of that, I think I'm on board with all the emotional stuff that you're talking about, the the, the character arc for Loki. It's just execution-wise. Those two things, didn't, I just can't give it A+. Plus. It's a B-plus episode to me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can I okay. say you guys are right. You're probably you are, right. You are cast out of the Marvel Standom Kingdom. <laughs> oh, the commenters did that to me a long time ago. <laughs> um, I, I will say I think it's it's a little funny that you're I don't want to say hung up, that has like a, a negative connotation, but let's say hung up on uh whether this is an episode of, of television or not. And it's not, it doesn't work as an episode of TV, but Marvel hasn't been making TV this whole time. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, Marvel gave you guys a TV show, She-Hulk, and you all hated it. Um, so they're just <laughs> not going to do that anymore. Um, this, just like everything else, is a whatever hour movie. Um, and this episode in particular is its own self-contained, fairly short movie. It, you said it's kind of like Endgame, and I think it's more successful in in the forty-five minutes that it gets than than you really allow for. It it does work. There 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 is a bit of a of a sharp tone change after the Groundhog Day shenanigans. I will allow you that, uh, but it still works for me. I think it's a smooth enough transition, and there is like the Groundhog Day format is inherently tragic. Like, let's not forget that in Groundhog Day, like Bill Murray just relentlessly tried to commit suicide all the time. <laughs> like, it's it's a funny concept, but it's also a really heavy one to have to like relive the same events over and over and over again to, to try and capture some weird semblance of progress. Yeah, I, I it, it worked for me. 
and I wouldn't really necessarily concern myself over whether it was TV or not. <laughs> it's not none of these are. I don't want to get into it, but like it wasn't that long ago we were sat here for six weeks of secret invasion. And that was really quite bad. It does it does feel like a lot more people watched Loki than Secret Invasion, just from our numbers here. Um, but the ending of Loki season two seems to have confused quite a few people. Um, with your permission, I'd like us to do that thing that people do on the internet where they explain the ending, ending ex- Loki season two ending explained. Um, I'm I'm gonna give you guys a crack at it, and then I'm gonna say what what I thought happened at the end, and then maybe we can come together and give each other any a little bit of insight onto how it came across. So, how did Loki end, Alec? Oh man, I should really read the show notes ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> when I rolled out of bed this morning, I did not know I'd be explaining. <laughs> okay, no, I, I'm just joking. I'm not going to make either of you do that. No, but... I'll do it though. I'll, I'll, accept, I'll take on the gauntlet. Um, I, I have it right here and I can explain it and we can, you can see whether you agree with me or whether you felt like that, um, that I've gotten something wrong here, but it, perhaps it will help some people who are watching who weren't quite sure what exactly happened at the end of Loki. Um, essentially, what I felt was that the loom was never going to be able to handle the multiverse, uh, no matter what Loki and his friends did. Uh, it was deliberately constructed to only weave the sacred timeline, and that's it. So there was the suggestion that if Loki went back to that key season one finale moment with He Who Remains and killed Sylvie, uh, the multiverse would never be reborn uh, and things would be fine. But Loki would not accept that outcome. So after centuries of learning what was and what was not possible, he instead let the loom fail and used his magic to keep the branches alive, basically becoming both one who remains and creating a new kind of loom in the form of Igrisil. Igrisil, we still haven't figured out how we're going to pronounce that in this episode. Uh, the tree that connects all realms. Um, is that about right? I think that's exactly correct. Okay, well, good. But of course, throughout this whole season, we have said that not a lot about this show has made any sense at all. Are we still in a kind of place where um, it doesn't make sense, but that's okay? Or are we kind of fine with the explanations we were given in this finale? I think it all makes perfect sense now. And I think it's because, like, they were screwing with us this whole time. Like, the temporal loom was not really a thing. The options were infinite timelines or one timeline. He Who Remains had settled on one timeline, and the temporal loom was just a failsafe to keep that intact. So in hindsight, I think it makes a a lot of the things I was confused about, they make more sense now. And also, in a sense, like, (laughs) it almost renders episodes one through five of this season completely inconsequential. Well, that's another thing that I was going to ask. Like, if you rewatched this, would you even bother? No. (laughs) (laughs) Did you rewatch them, Kirsty? I knew you had mentioned you were going to watch all six over the weekend. No, but I am planning to. uh, I've got a few days off at the end of this week, and I'm going to sit and watch uh, all of them all the way through and see how it hangs together, because week after week, that was my kind of uh, hang-up, was that I'm not sure any of this makes sense. And then from the beginning, it felt like the loom was surplus to requirements and 
didn't need saving. It was only in episode five when they made it clear that if they didn't save it, the multiverse would die. And therefore there was some impetus for Loki to actually fix the situation and save the TVA. So um, in that way, I think I was satisfied by the finale. We have had some comments, though, from people who have saying that season two didn't really serve Sylvie very well, considering her character was made such a big deal of as a, a variant of Loki in season one. Uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like I feel like they put on um on that character, uh, like I've seen a lot of the consternation about the other timelines being destroyed. They, they, they kind of offloaded all of that onto her. And she didn't really get much of an arc, especially compared to the the, the last season. Um, and I never really bought into the chemistry or the romance between them, but she needed something to do. And, and, and her one conversation that she has in the bar with Loki in episode five was such a good reminder of how strong this actor is, you know, and, and she just I just don't think that she got much to do. Even that last conversation that they have at the end. I, that was that was Loki's. He had agency in that scene. I can't think of one one particular moment this season where she had agency or she was acting out of what she wanted, other than you know, leave me alone. So I I do agree with that. I think they they didn't know what to do with her. Um, I I agree too. Uh, and in hindsight, knowing that uh, the first five episodes mean nothing conceptually because the temporal loom doesn't exist. Like that would have been a good time to explore their relationship and build that up more. I didn't mind that she was in the background a bit and more of the ensemble chatter in season two because she had such a huge part in season one. Um, and this season did feel like it was about Loki and that it was going to stay focused on Loki. Um, also, I'm hoping we we see Sylvie again, you know, in full Enchantress mode, that she will uh, pop up again in the future. So for me, it doesn't feel like this is the end of Sylvie and not the last we've seen of her. We're going to be talking more about the Loki finale in a bit, but first, a word from our sponsor, eBay. eBay is the premier destination for collecting comics, both old and new. Whether it's that highly sought-after iconic comic or an obscure niche that speaks directly to you, odds are you'll certainly find it on eBay. Here's a list of comics that are must-haves for any fan of Marvel variant chaos. Avengers 10 As MCU fans are starting to learn, Kang has many variants, including Pharaoh Rama Tut and the Scarlet Centurion. But the most infamous of the variants, seen in the post credit scene of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, is Immortus. Comic readers first met Immortus shortly after they met Kang and Rama Tut in Avengers 10 from 1963. Artist Don Heck steps in for Jack Kirby, penciling a goofy tale written by Stan Lee about Immortus irritating both the Avengers and their enemies, the Masters of Evil. When Immortus arrives in the future, he demonstrates his power by forcing heroes and villains alike to battle with historical figures like Attila the Hun and Paul Bunyan. Though Immortus will go on to be a much more serious threat, it's worth checking out his wonderful and ridiculous introduction in Avengers 10. Young Avengers 1 As the last comic demonstrates, the Avengers are no strangers to time travel. But all of Marvel's heroes were surprised when a teen from the future arrived and called himself Iron Lad. Arriving in a present in which the Avengers have been scattered by a terrible attack, 
Iron Lad begins gathering a group of young heroes to defend the Earth from Kang the Conqueror's latest attack. The Young Avengers brought the Teen Titans formula over to Marvel Comics to great success, and the exciting new take on established heroes led to many twists, including the shocking reveal of Iron Lad's true identity. Legends of the Dark Claw 1 Superhero stories love crossing into alternate realities, and for Marvel Comics heroes, no reality is more alternate than the DC Universe. The two worlds collided on a few notable occasions, and the most surprising was the creation of Amalgam Comics in the 1990s. A combination of DC and Marvel, Amalgam Comics featured heroes and villains made from mixtures of characters from their original universe, including Logan Wayne, aka The Dark Claw. Legends of the Dark Claw 1 opens with a shocking splash page, with the Batman and Wolverine amalgam Dark Claw in battle with the Hyena, a Joker and Sabretooth mix. Throughout the story, readers meet characters who seem familiar but are totally new, including Dark Claw's sidekick Sparrow, who sports Jubilee's glasses and Robin's colours, and Carol Danvers, the cat burglar known as the Huntress. 16021 Great variant stories live and die according to the creative team's ability to keep characters familiar even as they appear in different forms. Writer Neil Gaiman sets up quite a challenge for himself in the eight-issue series 1602, in which Marvel heroes appear in early 17th century England. Readers will likely recognise Queen Elizabeth's spymaster Nicholas Fury, or the blind balladeer Matthew Murdoch, even if they never don their iconic suits. 1602 can be overwhelming to those reading its first few issues. Gaiman convincingly borrows the language of Elizabethan literature, a far cry from Stanley's snappy dialogue. But as the story unfolds and the plot comes together, readers find an adventure in the mighty Marvel tradition, one that even connects to the current continuity. Ultimate Fallout 4 No alternate reality is as beloved or long-running as Marvel's Ultimate Universe. Launched in 2000 as a separate reboot of the Marvel Universe that reintroduced Spider-Man and the X-Men as all new characters. While the Ultimate characters often differed from those in the mainline Marvel Universe, the most important variants appeared in Ultimate Fallout 4. Writer Jonathan Hickman takes Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four on a journey that ends with him taking on the villainous persona of the Maker, a bad guy who continues to plague the Marvel Universe today. But the greatest variant of the Ultimate Universe is a teenage boy in a Spider-Man costume who appears in Ultimate Fallout 4, trying to fill the hole left by the death of Peter Parker. He's not yet in his distinctive costume, but everyone recognises this new Spider-Man as Miles Morales, star of the hit Spider-Verse films. Head on over to ebay.com today to start or expand your collection. And now, back to the show. Because there's already been a first season of Loki and it was quite a while ago, I think coming back, it's quite easy to take for granted how much effort and care has been put into building the TVA and all those little touches that make it feel like a real place stuck in some kind of um, odd 70s sci-fi era. Um, the directors that came aboard this season from Moon Knight, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, did really did embrace everything that was already at their disposal and also create like an additionally uh, very visually impressive stuff for season two uh, with the crew there. 
We've just heard um, just a little while ago that they've been put um, directly on the new Daredevil series for Marvel because I guess Marvel weren't happy with what had happened so far. It does feel like Benson and Moorhead are quite a dream team uh, for Marvel. Are they the new Russos, do you think, Joe? Or um, <laughs> do they deserve better than this? I mean... I, I so I went into this as a huge fan of theirs. I uh, I think Spring is uh, a perfect movie. It's one that my wife and I watch every uh, Valentine's Day because we like to watch horror movies about spouses d- devouring one another or partners devouring one another. Um, and it, it's lovely. I mean, I think all of their movies are really interesting and do a perfect job melding character moments with some high concept stuff um endless really great uh so they they come into this with more of a proven track record than the russos and um and you know i i i think oh i was the lone moon knight good well the major moon knight good voice um but a lot of that goodness came from them i i their their camera movements the way that they frame the shots it, they've got a really good eye for balancing these things and and i'm excited about what they're going to do with daredevil there is part of me that's worried that um <laughs> i'll never see another weird indie horror movie from them again and uh i i'm bummed about that aspect of it hopefully they can find a way to keep these wonderful little inventive films but as a fan of of Marvel, I'm glad that they're working on it, and they are a huge improvement over the Russos, who were <laughs> mediocre at best. When they... <laughs> I can't imagine Benson and Moorhead doing any like you know uh, airport uh, parking <laughs> situations, like <laughs> given for their episodes of television, they went to such great lengths to make them look spectacular. <laughs> it doesn't seem like with a bigger budget they do anything less than that. So. It'd be, it would be good to see them be given a, uh, not just one of these movies, but, you know, many movies having proven what they can do just with a little bit here, you know. So, uh, you know, more more Benson and Moorhead in whatever form is a good thing, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully this will get people to check out their other movies. Like, I, Yes. Uh, Synchronic is the only one that kind of didn't work for me. But besides that, the rest of them are really fantastic. Uh, you, you should go check them out. Yeah, Synchronic, I didn't I didn't like that one, but I did really love The Endless. I love Spring. Um, so hopefully um, more people will will go and watch those because you should. Uh, if you yes. like Loki season two, check out Spring and The Endless. Get back to us afterwards. Let us know what you think. Um, the only other thing I wanted to talk about before we start getting into Easter eggs and bits was Mobius. Because hit that moment at the end of this finale where he goes to see his family, um, and he's just sort of sort of stood there saying that he's going to let some time pass or whatever. Actually got me really choked up, which I wasn't expecting. You know, all the grand stuff with Loki, with him becoming, you know, um, the god of stories or whatever, um, didn't really get to me emotionally, although I did enjoy it. It was that one moment with Owen Wilson just selling a single close-up that um, d- absolutely destroyed me. Was I the only one? No, I, that, it's okay. a destroying moment. <laughs> it's lovely. Okay. And you're right when you say it's the, the single close-up, um, just to kind of follow the Benson and Moorhead uh, track, is they they do a lot of close-up of people's faces or shot reverse shots in this episode. And I think that is so smart for what they're trying to do and for what they're trying to overcome. You know, if the whole point of 
Loki's decision at the end is he's giving up his friends. Um, just letting us sit on their faces for a while is, I mean, that's the best special effect that they have. We've talked about that all season, that they've done such a good job casting, not so much great actors, even though th that's definitely the case, but great looking people, you know, people that we just want to see their faces on screen. And as much as I do not to jump over. Well, let me say it this way. Um, I don't think that moment with Mobius would have worked for me if it wasn't shot like that. Just holding on his face, watching Owen Wilson use like all of those sad, ridiculous muscles that he's gained from doing Wes Anderson movies where things are both, you know, twee and silly and deeply heart wrenching all at one time. You know, they, they knew he had that skill in his box. And so they just used that to overcome anything that wasn't quite working in the script. And I feel like they do the same thing in the 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 conclusion, which I said didn't work totally visually. The thing that did work was lots of Tom's face because him looking so sad at the end was sold everything that green goop could not sell. I, I just, that's, that's the thing that I think is so exciting about Benson and Moorhead working on this stuff is they, they know how to bring maximum emotion and maximum power without relying on the special effects. And when the special effects aren't quite doing it, which is what Marvel's running into a lot, they find those really clever ways of grounding the story in something else. And so to get around to your initial question before I started rambling, <laughs> yes, that moment worked really well because I think the directors were smart and they knew that they had an actor that could pull it off even if something else couldn't do. And that straight on shot, beautiful. And it hops to um, a different shot through some CGI, uh, but the, you hear the little echo of uh, um, let time pass, let time pass. And then it zooms in on Loki just at the center of everything um, because Mobius is out, out of the TVA and he's on the timeline. He can hear Mobius say that and he has a little smile, um, which is absolutely is another close up, which is is very like heartbreaking. And what a way to end. I think it's 14 years of this Loki story in the MCU. Is this a fitting end for Tom Hiddleston's Loki or at least this variant of Loki? I think it's impossible to imagine a more fitting end. Like they gave him the king, the, the keys to the multiverse. Um, I think anytime that like, I'm just going to refer to the world now that we live in as Loki's multiverse. <laughs> so like, this is not the best movie in the world. This is the best movie in Loki's multiverse. Um, <laughs> I think it, yeah, I just, I love that ending. I think it's like, it's not only a nice little uh, perk to give an actor who's done so much for the franchise. It also just works logically and emotionally for me. Um, it's hard to say whether this episode is imperfect or not, because the ending is so on point for me that uh, as long as it ends that way, I'll ignore anything that comes before it, really. It's a perfect tragic ending, apropos of a mythological figure you know he he gets what he wants and it's horrible <laughs> it's right it's it it felt like a heroic turn that was in keeping with his character um it both you know powers and motivations and everything that we've seen him do uh both in the movies and in the tv show it it, it, it well, that was perfect yeah i really liked the end of this season and I think that it probably is the last we'll see of Loki at least for a long time and I'm happy with that 
uh, I think that they did a terrific job of wrapping up his journey here. And I can't think of a better way to end it. Like you guys, I, I, I didn't see this ending coming and it's, it's very heartbreaking, very tragic, but he did get his throne. He did get his glorious purpose and it just happened to be nothing like <laughs> exactly what he uh, dreamed of. But um, yeah, very sad, but the end of Loki. Um, not as sad are Easter eggs in the episode. Um, we have Yggdrasil. The um, world tree was actually kind of set up in the MCU over the years. Uh, it was first teased in Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, with Hugo Weaving's Red Skull uh, claiming the Tesseract from behind a mural of the tree back in 1942. Much of Loki's story then revolved around the Tesseract in the Avengers and the beginning of Infinity War when he died basically offering it to Thanos. It was also mentioned in the first uh, two Thor movies. So um, it, it, the Yggdrasil has been around for a while um, but only became very key here. We also hear in the episode that uh, there's been a kerfuffle uh, on 616 adjacent. That's the quantum realm and the things that happened with uh, Kang the Conqueror in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania earlier this year. If you remember that movie, uh, I'm struggling at the moment, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that did happen. Uh, towards the end of Thor, the first Thor movie, Loki told Odin, I could have done it farther uh, for you, for all of us, before falling off the Bifrost bridge and becoming a villain. In Loki season two finale, he told his friends, I know what God I need to be for you, and for all of us, uh, before taking on the safety of the multiverse. So again, it's come full circle. Um, there's also a file on Mobius's desk that reveals his variant number as MFF353, which is a reference to Marvel Comics Fantastic Four number 353, the first issue in which Mobius appeared. Do we have any final thoughts on Loki? I think it was uh, really bold to uh, name this episode Glorious Purpose. Yes. Just as the, the, it's so creative to do that with um, the, the series premiere as well. And I think if you were, in some respects, like, yeah, the events of this episode do catch you off surprise. But if you're if you're like paying really close attention and thinking about where things are going, it's almost a spoiler. Um, like what other glorious purpose could he have than to sit a throne, but in a brooding, tragic way? <laughs> Kudos to that. Uh, episode naming title conventions are more important than you think. That's one of my <laughs> uh, TV subjects I'm interested in. Also very confusing for the people writing the Wikipedia entry yeah. for Loki season two and season one, uh, because now it will have to either redirect or maybe have something in brackets afterwards <laughs> so that people know where they're going. Do you have any final thoughts on this finale and on season and the series in general, actually? Yeah, it feels to me like kind of an end of an era for MCU TV, mm. you know, which has been a not terribly successful <laughs> experiment, I think, overall. And I know we've got, you know, I, I know we know the Echo's coming and that trailer looked pretty great. I'm interested more than I thought I was going to be, you know, and I know Daredevil's out there and there's all sorts of other things that I don't think will happen. <laughs> but all the kind of extra signs are pointing to a slowdown of Marvel stuff for one reason or another. And I, I'd kind of be okay if this was the end of, the MCU TV shows on Disney Plus. This this felt like as 
as good an ending as you could possibly get. And uh, this was, if I remember correctly, this was the first TV show spinoff announced. And it's the one that kind of made the most sense when you walked out of Endgame. You're like, oh, that's, it's going to be about Loki, this variant. So it it just, it feels like such a fitting end to that. And and while I do hope that that Echo is good and Daredevil is good and there are good things coming, part of me is also like, Okay, let's quit while the getting's good because you guys haven't been nailing this. So you nailed one. Let's 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 end it. We wouldn't want them to quit after Secret Invasion, is what you're saying, Joe. Oh man, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and you're. I, I need to go back to this because you brought this up earlier. You when I was dogging the episode, you brought Secret Invasion up, and yes, <laughs> Secret Invasion is utter garbage. And part of my. I, I know I'm nitpicking as opposed to at the end of Secret Invasion. I was just like, I'm glad this is done. Loki's been so good that I can't help but see those those couple of things that aren't clicking for me as opposed to Secret Invasion where every episode was like maybe one thing is going to be good. So, yeah, I'm going to hold it to a higher standard. It's a better show all, all across the board. Thank you. I needed to say that. That's it for this episode of Marvel Standom. Make sure you're subscribing to us wherever you're watching or listening right now. Don't forget to check out our web home of denofgeek.com where you can find all our Marvel coverage. You can also follow us at denofgeekus on Twitter and denofgeek on Instagram. If you need more, all episodes of Marvel Standom are available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks once again to the sponsor of this episode, eBay. Be sure to check them out for all your Marvel-related collectibles. This has been Marvel Standom on the Den of Geek Network. Until next time, please be good to each other and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Marvel Standom, produced by Andrew Halley, Kirsten Howard, and Joe George. Hosted by Kirsten Howard. Editing and graphics by Andrew Halley. Social media coordinator, Lee Parham. Additional artwork by Chloe Lewis. Production assistant, Michael R. Music licensed from soundstripe.com. Marvel Standom is a production of the Den of Geek Network. For more information, visit denofgeek.com.